Welcome to the Ways and Memes podcast, the official podcast of Young Progressives Demanding Action. YPDA is a nonpartisan civic engagement organization dedicated to engaging young people in the legislative and democratic processes and training them to become effective organizers and advocates for the issues that matter most to our generation. Ways and Memes. Ways and Memes. Ways and Memes. All right, and we're back uh, this month with our July episode of the Ways and Means podcast to talk about racism in Hawaii uh, as it pertains particularly to black people. With Hawaii having the reputation of being a melting pot, at least according to Honolulu Police Department Chief Susan Ballard, that people in Hawaii have less unconscious racial stereotypes and think that Hawaii residents don't hesitate to talk about race, uh, this month, we invited several guests to talk about some of these preconceived notions and, uh, and challenge some of them, and also to just find out what we can be doing more to uh, address racism against black people and uh, people of all t- colors in Hawaii. Um, so real quick, I uh, would like to just start with introductions. Uh, my name is Jeff Kim, and I'm uh, currently uh, the hub coordinator for the Sunrise Honolulu Hub. Uh, Nate, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, Nate Hicks here, um, Economic Justice Chair with um, YPDA, as, as well as the Director of Living Wage Hawaii. Um, so that's sort of my background is the economic sides of things. Right on. And Ken Lawson, would you mind introducing yourself? And Ken Lawson, I'm a professor here at the uh, William S. Richardson School of Law and also the co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project. Hey, everybody. I'm Will Carone. I'm the current co-chair of Young Progressives Demanding Action. Okay, Awesome. So, yeah, just to get right down to, uh, you know, some of those questions that we're coming up from the introduction. uh, The first question I want to start with is just very open-ended question um, that I think a lot of our listeners would like to get more detail about is, uh, is there a difference between racism against black people in Hawaii in comparison with the mainland? I'll let Nate take a stab at that. Uh, it's a it's a heavy question for sure, um, and I can only speak from my own perspective, right? Um, I'm not I cannot speak on behalf of Black people in the least, um, and I'm also coming from a, a position where you know I'm half. I'm, my my dad's black, my mom's white, um, and so my skin tone is lighter um, than your average black man, um, which has a big difference, right? Skin tone is real, um, you know. Um, so I'm I I come from a very privileged place in that in that standpoint. Um, but I know, um, you know, I grew up in Minnesota, so my general experience is from there, went to school in Iowa, and, um, you know, I was very lucky to grow up in a place where I had a lot of mixed uh, groups of friends. I had white friends, black friends, Asian friends, Hispanic friends, and it wasn't until later, um, you know, uh, once I got to college and so on, that I really noticed that um, racism was uh, very prevalent and it existed, you know, you know, you have that chat, your dad sits you down like, hey, uh, you know, when you're driving around, you have to be very careful, right? Uh, make sure that people aren't following you. You know, um, you never know what the cops are going to do. So always be prepared. You know, you don't know what kind of trouble you're going to get yourself into. And, you know, um, you also have this sense of, um, uh, you know, being an outsider in your own country, you sort of recognize that, you know, you walk into a room and everybody knows that you're a black man and you're in the room with them, right? Um, you could ask anybody who was with you at a, a party or a gathering or a classroom, say, oh, were there any black people in the room? And everybody could immediately say, oh, yeah, this was him, right? Um, being black is a very, um, it, you know, it's very prevalent. You, everybody's aware of it. 
Um, and what I can say is here is I don't get this hyper awareness of my race as it, uh, as, as I experience life here. It's not super something that everybody's always focused on. And I'm not always concerned of, did that person treat me poorly because I was black or did they just treat me poorly because that's how they treat people? Or was it because of something I did, right? That question is always in the back of your mind, more so on the mainland here. Um, who knows? Um, I think that's my own perspective. Um, and that's just from my own personal experience of, of interactions within society, right? Uh, just personally. Um, institutionally, um, we can get into that discussion later, but I'll just take a pause now. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I, I appreciate what Nate said. I think all of our experiences are different. And so um, even though we're doing a podcast on the distinction, it's going to be, you know, uh, unique to our own experience. But, you know, man, um, for me, I came up just the opposite. Man. And, and my mother is, is white and my father's black. Um, but I was placed up for adoption. So I was raised in a black home um, and, and uh, in a black neighborhood. And, and in a um, pretty high crime rate area. And, and you know, and so that, you know, when I was coming up, man, we were made keenly aware of it from the time I was young. Um, you know, there were certain neighborhoods, you know, we just didn't ride through. Certain white neighborhoods, you just, you just don't go through. And, and white folks knew not to come in our neighborhood. Um, and, and it was just that way. It was very divided. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and hell, um, in 2001, as recent, and it's not that recent now, but you're talking about 2001 when the Ku Klux Klan was allowed to put uh, crosses on the downtown Fountain Square, uh, right next to the Christmas tree, because it was their religious symbol, and stand with uh, hoods on, you know, and have black police officers guarding them, you know, and, and so when I, you know, when I, when I came up, man. I mean, you know, we was called nigger um, uh, by white folks. Uh, and, with, you know, and, and I'm talking in the 70s. And so, um, and I, you know, what they were saying, that paranoia that, that exists, you know, when you're in the city uh, and, and you don't know if you're being served, um, if the waiter is not coming to your table uh, because you're black, right? Or is it just because he's busy? Uh, and, and that, that type of paranoia just continues, you know, um, it's 24 seven and it's hard to explain that to people, um, that, 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 that is, it's just a constant state uh, of being black, right. Uh, that other people don't have to worry about. And, and so, um, you know, you don't know if, you know, uh, if people are, are talking to you a certain way because of the color of your skin. And then if you say something, right. And oh, you know, you're playing the race card or you're being paranoid. You know what I mean? And so, you, you know, and, and so I know when I came here in Hawaii, uh, I just feel like the only difference is there's just not a lot of us. That if it was more of us, we feel the racism. The racism to me is still here. I still had a, but you know, I'm, I'm older than Nate. So, you know, that my paranoia has been, been uh, deeply entrenched. Uh, and, and so I remember uh, last year, there was a, uh, a guy, a, a Chinese man that was an inmate, came to the court dressed in blackface. He, he took a marker. I don't know if y'all remember this or not, but it was all yeah, over. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. He, he took a marker and marked, marked his face black and came into the courtroom. 
and, and didn't like the way he was being treated. And his theme was, if you're going to treat me like a black man, I think he used the N-word, I'm not sure. But whatever he said, you know, then I'm going to come into court like one. And, you know, the judge didn't stop the proceeding. The defense lawyer didn't stop the proceeding. The prosecutor didn't say, hey, you ain't coming in this court, disrespecting this court. Like, they went on ahead and sentenced him. And so I called the local NAACP and they say, well, you know, we ain't trying to, you know, you know, raise no hell about this. They didn't say it in those words, but they said, you know, we're just going to wait and see what happens. Right. And the black lawyers didn't say nothing, you know. And so sometimes man, it, it makes me. So I wrote an article on civil beef because no matter where I go, I'm black. And so I was asked by uh, another uh, organiz black organization here. So, you know, I uh, they, they honored me with an award. And, and what the question that was asked of me was, how has Hawaii affected my blackness? And I'm like, no, how's my blackness affected Hawaii? Because I'm black no matter where I go. And I'm not going to change who I am because where I where I'm at. And, and so I think, you know, at least for me, I'm even more conscious of my blackness here because I want you to be aware that yes, it we all come from different backgrounds. Yes, it's more diverse than, than my, I mean, my city was just white and black, man. Um, but yes, it's more diverse here. But uh, I don't want to be in a melting pot. I want to respect you if you're white. I want to respect you if you're Asian. Uh, I want to respect your culture if you're Native Hawaiian, if you're Micronesian, right? And understand that, that, that you should be proud of who you are and where you come from. And at the same time, I want you to respect me. Um, and so, um, you know, so I, I don't know, man, you know, it, it's just, you know, I've been here 12 years now, going on 13 years now. So it's just, um, it's different in the sense that there's not a lot of us, but, um, but it's still here. It's still mm -hmm. here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I recently or recently oh, about a year ago now. I visited Morocco with my white friend and we've been friends for 15 years now, white guy from Iowa. And we go to Morocco, um, you know, you know, 99% Arabic population or something like that. Um, and so he sticks out like a sore thumb, right? We're walking around Casablanca, Marrakesh, stuff like that. And we were there maybe three, four, five days. I don't remember, maybe day four or something. And we're sort of having a recap lunch and he says something. He's like, hey, you know, I'm glad we came to Morocco, right? But, you know, I can't say I'm ever going to come back because, you know, the last three or four days I walk around and everybody's looking at me. They know I'm an outsider. They're wondering, what am I doing here? You know, I just really don't feel comfortable. And I kind of laughed at him. And I was like, <laughs> man, this is how black people feel in America their entire lives, every single yeah. day. Um, and he like, I mean, and to his credit, you know, it didn't dawn on him. He was being genuine. It was, he was mm -hmm. his feelings and I wasn't trying to uh, discount them at all. Um, but mm -hmm. it was kind of, eye-opening. this is one of my closest friends, right? It's not like just some random dude, you know? Um, so someone who was that close to me and he had no idea. He's like, Oh my goodness. Like, I can't believe it. Like it was really, it really hit him. And uh, he, he's come up to me since then. He's like, Hey man, I've really been thinking about what you said to me that day. And, and so that to me, um, was really was really important because it now gives me some context to be able to share with people what it you know at least mm -hmm. an ounce of what it feels like to be black in America. Yeah, that's a great example. It really is. Really, it really hammers the point home in a really nice little little story right there. 
I hope he's going to go back now. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't really comment on, you know, uh, being black, certainly. Um, but I was, I was born and raised here. Um, and I do, I, I've been thinking a lot about that melting pot idea. <clears throat> and, you know, it's something that, that we were taught to be proud of as, as kids, um, that Hawaii was this melting pot and that supposedly everybody pretty much got along with everybody. And I mean, from my own personal perspective, I, I don't think I ever really experienced any, um, uh, anything super particularly negative in any kind of way, um, being a white person in Hawaii, which it seems kind of obvious, but there are white people who say that they've experienced, uh, that they've had negative experiences for being white here. Um, but that idea of the melting pot, I think is kind of damaging in some ways because it's basically a way of, of teaching kids to be colorblind. Um, and, um, to, to kind of make that assumption that, um, there is no racism in Hawaii. So I think, um, in particular when, when the police chief used that phrase, um, it's, it's something that I've had to unlearn over the past decade or so since college that, that, that idea of being this racial utopia is, is really basically nonsense. Um, and that things are a lot more complicated than that in Hawaii. So that's all I got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I think my experience so far since I've been here is, is just, I mean, it's been really, um, uh, different in the sense that um, there is so many diverse people, but like I said before, I, uh, you know, I, I really do push back on the melting pot. No matter where I go, and no matter whether I'm teaching class or uh, in a faculty meeting, whatever, you know, um, I don't hesitate. Um, you know, just I mean, I don't go. I mean, I everybody knows, you know, how I feel about um, being black. Uh, and, and I want the students to understand, you know, there's, there's really absolutely nothing wrong with us discussing race in, in an open way uh, and understanding it, because especially law students, right? I mean, um, law students are ones who really have to deal uh, with this stuff. I mean, you, if you have mm -hmm. a Micronesian client and you go down to court and you have to have a jury trial, what, what obstacles are you facing? If you have a Black client or a Native Hawaiian client and you have to represent them in the court, you need to understand uh, some of the racism that goes on in a courtroom um, from a jury, a judge, or even the police that arrested your client in order to deal with it. And to act like it doesn't exist is to do a disservice not only to yourself, but to, to, your, to the clients you represent. Mm -hmm. um, but Hawaii is different because people don't like talking about stuff like this, right? People don't, it's almost like when you start bringing up stuff, it's like, oh, you're ruining our aloha. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You look at some of the police misconduct that goes on, right? You're talking about the chief of police. Now, I mean, you got the ex-chief going to prison, on his way to prison with his crooked-ass wife, uh, who was a uh, prosecutor, setting an innocent man up that happened to be uh, an uncle of hers and willing to send him to prison just to save their face. And, and to sit back and, 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 and say anything uh, has to do with race, whether to bring this up or to bring up policing. Um, it's almost like, oh, you know, um, you're running our aloha. Don't bring that mainland stuff here. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And, and, and so, hey, I'm like, hey, you know, 
See, I don't, don't, you know, I done been to prison. I mean, ain't, you know, I done lost, I mean, I've been a drug addict, been to prison, so ain't too much shit out here that scares me. So it's like, I'm going to say what I got to say. I don't care who, you know, whether you like it or not. Um, but I, I think, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to the, the chief of police talking about uh, the melting pot, as you were talking about, Will, and how uh, Hawaii has no, no problems. And when you look at systemic racism, it always starts with the system of justice. If you want to see how a city treats uh, its people with respect to race, look at their justice system. And, and, and again, when you see um, the population uh, and the statistics um, with Native Hawaiians comprising almost 40% of our prison population, even though they're, they're like 20% of the population, and then uh, Blacks are double the amount in prison. Then we, you know, I think we're like two to three percent of the population here, with six or seven percent of the prison population, right? Micronesians. And then you say, well, uh, you hear the chief say, well, you know, we're a melting pot and we we're color colorblind. That's that's BS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, attitude or or baseline that that creates the scenario in which people can say things like, well they may be overrepresented in prison, but that's probably because they create, they cause, or they, they commit more crimes instead of thinking about how ludicrous that sounds. I mean, you know, all things being equal, everything would be equal, but there's obviously circumstances that are, that are causing that. And, and just the sort of mis the misuse of statistics that's used to justify that position is really appalling in a lot of cases. Well, look at it, you, you know, they, they, you got people, White people in Kahala getting high the same way you got them in Wai'anae getting high, but they ain't policing Wai'anae the way they police Kahala. So mm -hmm. you go down to Wai'anae, what they'll tell them young men standing on the corner is get up against the car, put your hands on top of the car, and then what are you all doing out there? And then they patting them down. See, they don't do that kind of policing out there in Kahala. They don't do it out there in Hawaiian Kahala. And so the, 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 when you talk about disparities, racial disparities in the justice system, you got to start with how you police in the neighborhoods. Because I promise you, they smoke weed and they smoke uh, cocaine and snort shit in, in Kahala the same way they snorting it and doing it and doing ice and, and, and why not, right? 100%, yeah, 100%. They definitely do. <laughs> so so it's, it's, the, it's the way that, 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 that you police. And, when, and, and again, I think... Um, um, all that, and, and so again, going pushing back on what you, what people is, and you're pushing back on it too, Will. When they say, "Well, they must be doing more crime," no, you know, and then they get sentenced harsher, right? And so, you know, when I mm -hmm. when I did criminal law in Ohio, I, I had forty percent of my clients were white, right? Because because you know, I just fought, and so they, you know, and and uh, sixty percent were black. And I could have a white client and a black client charged with the same offense on different occasions, right? So I'm in front of the same judge in March that I was in January. But my March client is white. My black client in January, I mean, my client in January is black. Same offense, same judge, two different sentences, right? Uh, right? And I'm the same lawyer. You know what I mean? So... Um, yeah, it starts yeah. with the way we police. And that's that, why that, they, in Kalihi, they, they police a lot different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and it's antagonistic the same way it is in black neighborhoods, which, 
you know, one of the reasons why we started this whole conversation um, mm -hmm. on the mainland. The, the way that we are policed is totally different. I've been in riots uh, in 2001 in Cincinnati, um, you know, and I did those cases that, that um, with the Georgia, you know, I did civil rights cases uh, representing families of unarmed black men and women and kids killed uh, by the Cincinnati police and Louisville police and Indiana police. Um, and, and, and so the way that they police our neighborhoods is just totally different. Uh, and the arrests that they make when they let the other kids go. You know, little Johnny, I, I know your dad, right? So you've been out drinking and your car smells like weed. I'm going to call your mom and have her come pick you up. But with the black young man, you know, you're going to jail. So I didn't mean something to go off on that tangent. No, man. no, no, no. no. <laughs> something, something you said, Professor Lawson, at, at one of the rallies recently, oh, you talked a little bit about um, – cops coming from the neighborhoods they police and how I think you, what you said was that that was more common in Hawaii. Is that, is that right? Yeah, because we're, we're so small that, mm. that it's more common. Mm -hmm. But despite that, there's still clear bias in, in the policing, even though those cops are coming from those neighborhoods, supposedly. Right. And see, and what I'm saying about that is when it comes, okay, so when we look at the protests and I'm on, and I should have paraphrased, uh, preface my statement by saying this. When I was on the mountain pro uh, protecting with the other uh, uh, Native Hawaiian brothers and sisters all last summer and the fall, and the police would come up, because they were from the neighborhood, right, you could tell that they didn't want to, 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 to engage in the same way we saw the police engage on the mainland in those uh, uh, riots and protests out there antagonizing the people, knocking 75-year-old white man down and, and, and having them, you know, um, suffer concussions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of that had to do with, and when we marched, the other, you know, we were, the, when you heard me speak at, right, the police mm -hmm. wasn't mm -hmm. antagonistic towards us. Now, you go on the mainland and do one of these marches, right, and you're going to see right. the difference in the way. Now, that that's separate. Going back to your point, Will, with respect to the way that um, people, um, the way that, that you still see uh, race-biased policing in Hawaii, right? So you don't have that many Micronesian, uh, I don't know if you have any Micronesian police officers on the police mm. force. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know how many Native Hawaiian police officers you have on the police force that, that uh, um, um, are policing uh, largely Native Hawaiian communities. Uh, and those things need to be looked at um, because when you have officers who don't live in Kali or you have officers that don't live in Wai'ana, uh, police in Wai'ana, you're going to have the same type of results here that you see on the mainland. And those statistics here bear it out, right? Uh, that you see um, racial disparities in arrests and in the types of charges being brought, same way you do on the mainland. Um, and so, yeah, it is there. Mm -hmm. So uh, one other question I had to kind of close up this section, uh, you know, talking about the difference of, uh, you know, the experience, the race, the racism experience here, you know, and how it might contrast with uh, the mainland. Um, I kind of wanted to bring up specifically, you know, uh, people of East Asian descent, you know, because I, I grew up on the mainland and of the, to the son of Korean immigrants. And definitely, you know, from day one, as early as I can remember, it was, 
it was, you know, taught to me to, to have some kind of bias against black people. And, um, and, you know, and like, in basically like, like, for instance, there was like, you know, I had, I don't even remember who it was, but like, I had like a, like, like a rap poster in my room when I was early, when I was like in middle school and my parents were like, Oh, like, you know, like, why do you want to emulate that guy? You know, and made it very, and, and yeah, and, and things like this, you know, and, um, and, and certain, but you know, I'm, I haven't lived here, you know, my whole life. And, you know, so definitely would like to hear Will's thoughts about this too. But, um, you know, if, if the, if the kind of, but so, so definitely, you know, like I find that most Asian people probably have, uh, you know, a decent amount of bias, you know, um, but I'm wondering if, if that, if it feels any different than, than the kind of um, prejudice, you know, and, and racism that one feels from, from mainland white people. And, you know, I, I guess I especially ask this question because, because, you know, uh, of, of, of the unique, you know, population of, of East Asian people here compared to mainland as far as how it makes the population. Um, so, yeah, I guess just kind of as an open-ended question, if, if, uh, if our guests had any thoughts about that. Well, I mean, Nate. Um, Nate, do you want to, do you want to go ahead? Um, you know, from my perspective, I, I haven't personally been subject to, uh, you know, direct biases from specifically Asian groups. Right. I mean, and, and I, like I said, uh, you know, I definitely come from a place of privilege where my experience with racism isn't just like these one-off issues. It's this system wide process. Right. Um, you know, I could go my entire, I have experienced negative uh, impacts, but a, a black person could go their entire life and not have a specific issue that they could point to like, Oh, that person called me the N word or this person, you know, fired me for just being black or whatever. They could go their entire life without having any of those specific instances, but they're still living in a racist system that produces racist outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it's not these individual one-offs because people individually are racist. It's because the system as a whole is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's my bigger thing is that um, living in a racist system um, isn't simply because you have biases in the individual, but you have biases in the, in the, in the world you live in. Yeah. I'm really glad that you, that you framed it that way, actually, because I think talking about it in, in that sort of systems level viewpoint helps to explain how in Hawaii you can have, uh, you know, I think Japanese people make up the, the, the majority if you go just by one ethnicity um, and certainly Asian people as a whole make up the majority here. Um, and, and yet here in Hawaii, they are, you know, they're the, the especially Japanese folks are the, the politically dominant ethnicity here. Um, they are on par or at least a lot closer to white folks in terms of earnings here in Hawaii than, than they probably are on the mainland um, because of that as well. And yet, and yet, as we've been talking about, racism still exists, right? So even in a place where maybe white people are not the majority and, and maybe aren't even the politically dominant ethnicity here, um, you still have outcomes that perpetuate race, racism and specifically perpetuate white supremacy. And I think um, it's important to talk in, in terms of systems because it's important to understand that whiteness or blackness or race in general is a systems thing right it's it's a construct that's been created to justify policies 
And those policies hold true here in Hawaii as well. And you don't have to be ethnically European to rep whiteness. You don't have to be ethnically European to rep white supremacy. I mean, the Proud Boys have members that are not ethnically white, and yet they are representing white supremacy in their actions. So I think that's, it's really important what Nate said to talk about it in a systems level thing um, where you can have you know, East Asian folks uh, be the dominant political class and the dominant economic class and yet still see racist and white supremacist outcomes here in Hawaii. Yeah, I, th- I think too that, um, y- you know, I, uh, they're not as vocal here uh, as, as I think Nate was getting to that point too, you know, and well, both of you are, you know, as far as like, like on the mainland, for the most part, you knew which white folks were racist. They had absolutely no hesitation to let you know they don't like your black ass, right? And so it, it was just the way it was. Here, um, you, you know it's there. And, and I think I think to me, the, the ones that are silent, you know, the, the racism from the Japanese, you know, I know it's there, right? Now, but they don't say it the same way. But to me, those are, are the, the most dangerous. And then the other part, that's different here too is that a lot of people joke about race when it ain't. Um, I mean, they they feel like that 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 it's okay to joke about race, and to me, a lot of it is, is racist, right? And like I'm, you know, mm-hmm. like call me Popo Polo, whatever you pronounce it. I'm like, hey man, you know, I'm not a coffee bean, you know, don't call me that, mm-hmm. you know. And and so, um, and so we don't mean any disrespect by it. But I'm like, you know, in fact, you know. So that there's, there's an organization that, that refers to themselves as that, and I, and and to me, I, that I can't tell somebody else what to call themselves. But that's not anything our ancestors called us, right? And, and so to call me Popo Polo and say, okay, that means something good. Well, you know what, that you, and and I should accept that name and call myself that. To me, um, um. Uh, to me, it's sickening. It's almost like somebody else named you something that they thought was good, and you're going to adopt that name when you're here in Hawaii, and you're going to refer to yourself as Popo Polo because we think it means beautiful, whatever. What what is it? A uh, uh, a berry. That, that, uh, my understanding is it means a berry, right? And and so again, we want you to adopt that and call yourself that. And I'm and I'm telling you, and I you know, and so I got into it with a few uh, people over here. But I'm like, look, that does not come from us. We come from kings and queens. We don't come from berries and plants. And and to have somebody else name us and then we adopt that name and call ourselves that means that either I'm lost or I'm willing to let you name me. And Malcolm X said it best, man, it's not what they uh, call you, it's what you answer to. And I don't answer to that. And so my point, you know, is that I had a few people, um, who, you know, who I'm cool with that started calling me that. And I'm like, hey, man, they said, you Pope Paul. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm not. And don't call me that. You know, well, we didn't mean nothing by it. That's fine. But we, I'm black, period. <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I guess uh, to I, I kind of wanted to touch back with, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, sort of policing and wanted to co- touch back on sort of these comments by Susan Ballard uh, since, you know, defunding the police has 
is so much on the minds of people uh, as of late. Uh, so I'll, I'll read again uh, what she said in so many words that, uh, that Susan Ballard downplayed the role that implicit bias plays in Hawaii during a recent Honolulu Police Commission meeting, saying that she thinks people in Hawaii have less unconscious racial stereotypes, noting that Hawaii residents don't hesitate to talk about race. Um, given some of the information that we know about, um, about policing in, in Hawaii and uh, as it re relates to, uh, to uh, implicit bias, uh, what do you, you all find is the fundamental issue with HPD as it relates to uh, racial bias? Um, yeah, just kind of leave it as an open-ended question like that. Well, real, real quick before, can I just say that I, I think I'm just rereading the sentence again that, that she said, and I can't believe she actually said that because in my <laughs> mind, it's, it's completely the opposite. I think, I think we have more specifically unconscious racial stereotypes in Hawaii. I think that's kind of what we're saying is like, it's there, but it, because of all of this veneer of melting pot, it's more of this like unconscious thing that we don't even realize necessarily. And, and that noting that Hawaii residents don't hesitate to talk about race. I feel, I feel like that is completely backwards too. Just as professor Lawson was saying, I think, I think anytime you bring up race in a serious context in Hawaii, people are, are extremely hesitant to talk about it just as, 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 um, as we were talking about. And I think that the only real way that, that race gets talked about in a, in a widely distributed public format here is through comedy. And that's another thing that, that Professor Lawson was bringing up. And as he was saying that, I was thinking about Augie T, who's running for city council out in Eva against Willis Barrow and, and who um, I recently discovered is a Trump supporter. And a lot of his jokes are these racially insensitive jokes. And, and there was that civil beat panel that he was on or no, sorry, it wasn't Civil Beat. It was, it was something else. Civil Beat covered it. It was a panel for something else about race in Hawaii. And, and there were no Native Hawaiians on the panel, um, first of all. And second of all, when somebody brought up the issue of, of Native Hawaiians and about, about their culture being appropriated and stuff, he just dismissed it. He completely waved it off and said, ah, that, that's too long and complicated of a question. We don't want to talk about that. And that is exactly the kind of response that, that I think most Hawaii residents uh, articulate when they're confronted with the issue in any kind of a serious way. If it's not a joke, nobody wants to talk about it. So right. anyway, I, I just, that, that statement seems completely backwards to me. Nate, would you want to say anything? Or? Um, I'll, I'll be honest, my background and my knowledge isn't really um, in the policing realm. Um, so I can't, I can't speak on uh, on what's currently going on locally. Um, I definitely uh, do, do realize that, yeah, people are happy to joke about race and racist terms, um, but having a real thoughtful conversation just does not happen on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one bringing stuff up as I usually am, regardless of the topic. And people are like, okay, come on, let's, uh, let's keep it civil here. <laughs> okay. so, yeah, Nate, we're just trying to have a good time here. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, 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 and it's like, um, I like what you said. Well, I really do, I, I, and and I applaud you for that because I when I when I got the notes that, that you guys had emailed us, I was thinking the same thing. You know, I had wrote an article about before Trump was elected as president, but I had wrote an article because of all the police shooting cases I had done over the years about implicit bias in police shootings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and a split second determined. You know, Tamir Rice and um, um, Walter Scott and some, and, and um, Michael Brown and Ferguson, you know, th those are actual shooting cases. 
And then after Trump got elected, even before the police shooting started happening and the George Floyd killing, and I started seeing the overt racism that was just like, I mean, a lot of it I thought had gone, that was just right there. And I knew then, I was like, this is implicit bias, it's some bullshit. Um, you know, you know, and I, and, I, and I think the same thing here. You know that you're going into uh, the Native Hawaiian community when you police. You know that's who you're dealing with. It ain't nothing unconscious about that at all. You get mm. your assignment. You're told, okay, here's where you're patrolling tonight. And so you know this is where you're going. This is who you're dealing with, right? And to say that it's implicit gives the racist an excuse to say, I didn't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so again, I you know I'm really you know, and I know that uh, the civil beat article you're referring to, and and you know Justin uh, um, Levinson does a lot of work in this area, and 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 I and I appreciate it, but you know we disagree on this impl- and implicit bias stuff, man. Because I'm just like, hey, I mean, to me, it's something that's come along and it gives racists an excuse to say. It's unkind. So, so what what kind of training are you going to give cops and and how to be more woke as far as race is concerned? You know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. Like, okay, well, you had this. We're going to do some implicit bias training. It's like, no, man. You know exactly what you're looking at. Now, the reason why you may think because I'm black, I'm more violent. That's a different issue. But you're looking at me. You know I'm black, and therefore you're thinking I'm violent, right? Now, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. right, and so. That's not an implicit bias. That's a, that's you specifically being racist. Um, you go back to slavery. They truly did believe Abraham Lincoln uh, on down truly did believe that black people were inferior mentally than whites. I mean, it's just a belief, right? Based on what they had been taught. It didn't mean it. Did, I mean, so that to me, it's not implicit bias. It's you've been taught racism. Therefore, you have racist beliefs. Um, and so not, you know, to me, it's just like, oh, it, to me, it's an excuse. Um, and, and it makes me angry because it makes it seem like, well, I didn't know that I was being racist, you know, when I shot you. Right. And that's where I think it gets, and that's where I personally believe it. And this is just my own opinion here is regardless of whether it's implicit or not, it, it, to, to me, to a degree is a bit irrelevant. The results are the results. Whether you intended yep. to be racist or not, whether the system explicitly is racist or, or, or not, um, you know, the outcomes nonetheless are the same, right? Um, people are dead, people are starving. Um, you know, I do think that, you know, there is uh, ways that we need to help uh, bring people to be more aware of what's going on. But, um, uh, you you need to fix the system regardless of whether it was uh, implicit or not. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, I agree with that. I, I just think that when you get down to the police and, okay, we're going to spend a ton of money on implicit bias training. What is that? I mean, what is yeah. that? Yeah. Right. I, or, or I, that. I agree with you there too, for sure. Yeah. I didn't mean to do that. Mean? But, but that, I, I, no, I agree with you totally. The, the, the bottom line is that there's having uh it, it contributes to systemic racism, right? You can call it what you want. You're still being racist. And I think, um, uh, and I don't know my facts on this. I'm still, I'm still like absorbing it all. You know, all this information is becoming out too, but they're saying Minneapolis had already implemented like half or two thirds of the policies that are people re- recommending that police yeah. forces around the nation 
need to do to fix this? And yeah. it's like, well, if Minneapolis had already done it and we've seen two deaths in the last few years or two uh, um, uh, well uh, publicized deaths in the last uh, few years, um, then these little trainings, like you're saying, are, aren't, aren't clearly the, the, the answer. Well, and, and, and because it's a, it's, a, it's a police culture, and when they come into our community, when I say our, I mean black and brown communities, it's, it's us versus them. And so you see that, um, that, 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 um, that friction when you have um, like large discussions about this. And so you'll see some people saying, you know, uh, they're very pro-police, all blue lives matter when you say Black Lives Matter, right? And it's almost like, you know, if you, if you say into, in some corners, if you say Black Lives Matter, that means you're anti-police. And, and it tries to put, it pivots or tries to put a person in a box. If you support Black Lives Matter, that means you're anti-police. If you're anti-police or, or if you're pro-police, that means you're uh, anti-Black. And, and all we're saying is we're just pro uh, uh we're against bad police, right? We're against racist police, but it's systemic. And so when you had a police coming into the neighborhoods already thinking it's us versus you, or you, you know what I mean? And, 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 it's, and, and that's the way we see them. When I, when I came up, man, when the police came, we would go the other way. Not because we was doing something illegal, because I don't feel like having you harass my ass tonight. Yeah. I don't uh, feel like getting up against the car and having you ask me questions that you ain't gonna ask somebody else. Well, you know, I ain't doing jack shit. And, and so um, it was just a different mindset. And, and, and again, I think that, that all that culture has to be, it's not just about implicit bias training or racist bias. It's just about just dismantling that entire culture and, and getting back to having your police, even if they're not from your neighborhood, uh, do what, you know, uh, in one of my lawsuits, a class action suit, we came up with what, what was called uh, community problem-oriented policing. It was implemented, and so the, the officers who patrolled the neighborhoods had to get out their squad cars and walk the beats. They had to have weekly meetings with people in the neighborhood to talk about different uh, 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 crime problems going on, because crime is unique to the neighborhood. So mm -hmm. some, like, say if you're down in, in Khalid or you know, you may have um, a meth house or something like that where the neighbors can talk about, you know, there's a lot of traffic going out this house at night to keep, you know, our kids afraid. And then you working with the police that, that patrol that neighborhood on how do you problem solve that? And, and, and the police are, are actually walking around the neighborhood, uh, making contact with the people in the neighborhood. And eventually what happened in that lawsuit over a seven year period is that the police got to know the people in the communities better. Complaints about police misconduct went down. Uh, arrests went down. We had the police going around, they had to carry a contact card with them. Anytime they stopped somebody, even if they didn't arrest them, they had to put down the age, the race, why they were stopping them, right? And, 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 and fill out these contact cards. That way the supervisor who's supervising these officers could look at what they're doing on a weekly basis and say, hey, I see you stopping a lot of people down here and on, on Bishop Street or whatever. You know, tell me why. What's going on with you? Why are you stopping all these people and they're not committing crimes? And then we can retrain them. Um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done here when it comes to uh, trying to have some uh, race bias-free policing. 
Um, and, and for the chief to say, everything's fine here. Um, when the statistics say it's not, uh, it's just to put your head in the sand and ignore a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to, to move, uh, you know, onto, uh, other questions, I guess, uh, as far as, you know, moving forward and kind of, uh, taking action, you know, this, this podcast, uh, since it is a young progressives demanding action podcast, we always try to spend some time focusing on the organizing elements and kind of the, what can we do? Um, so, you know, obviously from, uh, from the last month and a half month, month or so, you know, people have been calling this, uh, these protests and sort of this uprising a moment in history. Um, and you know, I guess want to just throw it out there as far as what, what do we think, you know, we need to, to kind of continue this momentum going to, to make this moment, you know, not just a moment, but a movement. And, um, and, and yeah, and I, and I guess maybe how we feel about how things are going right now, you know, it's, I know like definitely on the mainland, the, the protests are diminishing in numbers a bit as far as people coming out and, um, and yeah, and overall just what, what, what do we, what do we need to be doing more of doing differently um, to, to, I guess, further these, these causes and so forth. Jeff, if I, if, if I can, can I ask Nate one, one question that, that, that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier? Sure. Uh, and, and, and Nate, if, you don't have to if you don't want to, but I think it's important um, being uh, half white and half black um, and, and being raised in the way you were. Did you feel uh, that you weren't black enough to be black and, and not white enough to be white? And, and I'm not trying to be funny because I want no. you to, to, to explain uh, how that makes you feel. Because I'm half white like, like you are. Yeah, no, and I, and I laugh because it's like a very common thing. Like it's like, yes, you're, you're hitting exactly on my experience, right? Um, like I said, uh, when I grew up young, um, I had... We, I lived in a very mixed neighborhood, so I'm super fortunate. I had black friends, I had white friends, I had half black, half white friends. And so, you know, and we were young, you know, middle school and so on. So it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't until later when I started getting to the outside world where I was outside of this little sheltered bubble, then it really became, oh, okay. Um, yeah, plenty of people say, oh, oh, Nate, oh, you know, he's a white dude in a, you know, a black, black body, <laughs> whatever the case might be. And, you know, I got tough skin in general, you know, you're not really going to get to me in a ton, but it's definitely something like, wait, hold up. What now? Like, uh, excuse yeah. me. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you sort of deal self-consciously like, Oh, is this, this is that. And, you know, it's still something that you, you know, come to terms with. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm confident in myself. And so it, it doesn't eat at me like that, but um, it's starting to, you know, you know, then I start to recognize that, okay, the reality of the situation is that, people have these stereotypes in their mind, right? I don't fit their stereotypical view of what a black person is in their, their minds, right? And so since they have this homogenous uh, picture of what a black person is supposed to be and I'm not in it, um, you know, I fit more of what they view a white person to be and that means I'm no longer black, right? Black yeah. people can't, but there, it's not possible for a black person to have my experience or be, be who I am. And so that's what I'm start. you know, I didn't realize that at the time, it was just sort of like, you know, am I failing as a black person or whatever the case might be. Um, yeah. But now I recognize it's like a system thing. Um, and so now, um, you know, people always go, oh, do you, re- do you identify as white, black, what? And the issue was clear is there's no white person out there who looks at me and sees a white person, you know, <laughs> like that's not, 
how it works, right? We're, we're a result of the system that we live in. Black is a construct in and of itself in America too. Uh, and so as long as people see me and treat me externally as a black man, well, then that's who I am, right? I mean, at the end of the day. Um, and so, um, but yeah, I think, um, you, know, I, you know, I feel very, very lucky to be as confident in being able to, you know, carry myself as I am, but it's definitely something that, you know, I had to go through. Um, identifying, you know, who am I really? Can I embrace my true self? Do I have to adapt and, you know, be more black and all that? Right. right. Um, yeah. 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 No, no, I, I relate. And, and I think that's the reason why I think it's good for the conversation is because uh, there is a burden that we carry as, as blacks um, walking around in this society, especially um, like, like you said, it's more prevalent and overt on the mainland. And, and it's just, um, I can't tell you. the only time I ever felt and I can I went to San Francisco in 2002. I had never been there before. And I remember walking downtown San Francisco, my first day there thinking that nobody gives a shit what color I am. I mean, I, it was amazing. I mean, you could just it was almost like uh, a weight had been lifted off my shoulders because mm. when when I was, you know, in the Midwest it's like no matter where you go, you're, you're always concerned when a police car comes down the street. All, I mean, I can't describe to you how much weight this shit carries on a black person. Uh, and I didn't realize how much weight it was until I landed in San Francisco. I'm walking around and everybody is, nobody gave a fuck, right? I mean, everybody's just doing what they was doing. And you know what I mean? And it's still hard for me to describe that feeling to you, you know? Uh, and, and I feel it a lot here too. But I also know after being here for a while that that rate, when I was in a halfway house, there was a dark skinned Hawaiian. And, and, and one of the other Native Hawaiians called him, uh, a, 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 and he got mad as hell, right? I mean, he was so offended at being called the N word. Um, almost like, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so it's, it's here too, even amongst people of color. So I apologize, Jeff, but I just, I, I thought it was important. Um, for nature to, to bring that aspect to it because it's so it's not just you know about being black you know it's it's, it's hard to explain yeah no I, I i appreciate that um uh yeah so i guess just to yeah um kind of touch back on the the last question uh since I, as i mentioned you know we always try to talk about you know the since this is a, 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 a ypda is a community organizing uh, group, you know, to to talk about the organizing and sort of what we can be doing actively moving forward. Uh, in so many words, to make this moment, you know, uh, sustain itself as a movement. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I guess I can just start off real quick. You know, something that concerns me a little bit is is what I sort of assume from the start that you know that that at least the protest element of of what's been happening is 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 seeming to diminish as far as the momentum going forward and. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I felt like that was the main driving force as far as being able to pressure uh, officials towards taking uh, actions, you know, and, and meeting the demands that we've been talking about. But I, I don't know, I guess, what do you all think as far as uh, what we see in terms of, um, yeah, the, the, sort of this momentum of the last month and, and so and few days, uh, you, uh, you know, moving forward? Um, so again, from my perspective, I'm definitely like um, economics sides of the thing, of the coin, right? And I look at this movement, this 
this entire movement that's going on is a civil rights movement. Um, we're not just talking about the negative impacts that policing are having on the black community, right? We're tearing down Confederate statues. We're discussing redlining that's been, you know, a huge economic disaster for black folks. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, from my perspective, if we come out of this movement simply with a few chokehold bands and we all hold hands and say we did it, you know, that is a complete failure, right? I've never been a part of a movement. I've never seen a movement this large, global scale, thousands of people showing up. To me, we have to take this opportunity to end racism, like period. We can't just say, oh, we did this one part, now we're good. Um, so we have, to, we have to have that be the end goal. We're not just, we cannot just focus on the policing aspect. Although that's incredibly important and I'm not trying to diminish that at all. That's incredibly negative uh, uh, impacts on, on society. It's way larger than that. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm very biased in, in the sense, like I said, I come from the economic sides of things, is uh, the minimum wage has a dramatic impact on black folks in particular. And here in Hawaii, uh, Micronesians, Native Hawaiians, Filipino folks, especially, um, they, these, all of us are, are subject to starvation wages, unable to literally put food and shelter over our, ourselves um, after a full 40 hour work week. Um, so, um, and, the, and, and this has uh, generational impacts, right? If you're a low working, low wage working household, odds of your kid being low wage worker are way through the roof, right? It's like a one to one ratio. Um, that, you, you know, this is a generational impact. So um, I think number one is we have to make sure that it's, it, this movement is a, a, a end racism completely. Um, and, and also uh, we can no longer sit back and allow poverty to be prevalent amongst working people, right? If a full-time worker at the bare minimum, not just here in Hawaii, but across the nation was guaranteed to be financially stable, a lot of these other results, I think, would, uh, to a degree, subside slightly, right? Um, a lot of these racist results that we get are because of how prevalent poverty is amongst the Black community, right? Uh, the NAACP and the Ferguson Commission both came out and they said, hey, um, Blacks are overwhelmingly subject to low wages. If we raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks, um, that's going to give raises to 40% of our workers. So, um, if these, if these, if these groups are struggling to survive, um, you know, and, and we're going to continue that, continue, continue that idea for, for forever, um, racism isn't over, right? We still have, um, you know, exploitative labor practices amongst the, the darker skinned folks and it has to end. So to me, we have to demand a living wage. Um, I've been saying that already for years, so it sounds like I'm just saying it again, but the reality is true is, um, we cannot, we cannot, um, you know, racism isn't over until we have justice for all people. So, so that's, that's, that's my take. Yeah, I, th I think too, um, it's, it's been phenomenal. And I agree with everything Nate just said. I really think that, that it's deeper than just, I think, I think Trump has done the United States and the world a favor. I, I think, I think had it not been for him, <laughs> Uh, seriously, I, th I think had it not been for him, we wouldn't be where we're at right now. And when I say that, there's there's a there's a, a, a slow revolution starting, right? And it gets back to um, when you see the way he treated immigrants, when you see the way he treats um, the disabled, when you see the way he treats people that that, and 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 then you see a whole bunch of systematic white people that that follow him, you know, the the, the far right. 
and the way that people have just been pummeled and, and mistreated uh, by this administration. And it's almost as if people are saying, not only do Black Lives Matter, but we, we matter. And we're tired of the way that we're seeing you, United States, treat your own people and immigrants. And, and it's almost like, um, um, you know, going back to the economic point, right? It's like, you know, we, you know people need health care. People need a living wage. People, uh, homelessness shouldn't be criminalized. Uh, you know, and I think with, along with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all the messages that, you know, that has brought the young people to life, right? And the reason why you guys are doing this, this uh, um, podcast, right, is because something about what's going on has brought a lot of people to life. Uh, so with this momentum, you know, get people out to vote, get to, and understand the power of the vote so that we can start putting people not just here in Hawaii, but uh nationwide in office that's going to get that minimum wage that's going to get us uh free health care for all you know that that you shouldn't have to be paying for college education and come out broke right man yes you know and, and so uh going back to your, your your question jeff i really do believe that that the push on this um what's different to me is that and all the i've been doing protests since high school so we protest, protest, march, march, march. You saw it in Ferguson, you know, then all of a sudden it dies down. You know, everybody goes home. And and I guess that's really the point of your question. How do we keep this momentum going? And and I really think um, with the economic piece um, and with the push that was already there before all this stuff started, before George Floyd was killed, there was already a push to start changing what's going on in this country. Um, and to make it more fair for all people. Um, I really see that that, um, that this is a time for us to do it. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know how you keep the momentum going. It's almost like having a coach come in every day, giving you a motivational speech, we, we, right? And so it's really just about habit, right? And not so much about motivation. We have to get into the habit of making sure that we check one another. Have you registered to vote? Did you check your registration? I, okay, you say you're registered. Mm -hmm. Have you checked it? Are you aware of deadlines and become an active man and, and to take that one step necessary or that one extra step to say, you know, do you need a ride to the poll if, if we can't? Well, here, you know, we're going to have melon voting. You know what I mean? But whatever we can do, man, to get out there and just do that, take that extra step to help somebody else. And, and so, again, all that change starts with us. You know, that Michael Jackson song, man, I'm looking at the man in the mirror. It really does, man. Right? It starts right here. Am I willing to, to, to take a candidate and make a few phone calls for him? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in the, in the house any damn way. I ain't got shit else to do. You know what I mean? Am I, <laughs> am I willing to do that? Right? And just not, or what are you, right? And then each of us just, just being willing to do that, man. I think it's powerful. Whatever Your generation, you guys, man, your generation is it. Yeah, I think that, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah, and I, and I, and I, um, I did, I wanted to agree with you on that Trump issue as he's done us a favor, despite all of the, obviously, the immense negative things he's done, let's not take away from that. But I remember when these George Floyd's protests were just starting, and Trump had come out and said something like anti-Black Lives Matter. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like one of the first things he said in response. It was like, oh, man, the, the looters and the shooters or whatever that comment yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, this couldn't have been better. Like, if all of a sudden Trump is coming out 
against the movement, that forces everybody else's hand who's anti-Trump to be with the movement. <laughs> like, <laughs> All the white libs. Yeah, like <laughs> you gotta be with us now. And that, um, you know, the unfortunate reality is, is if we don't have white folks with us fighting, we're losing. The reality is, is we need allies across the spectrum. Right. And so he's bringing out everybody who he had already angered for years is now on board. And so I'm super stoked about that. And, 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 and I also want to echo exactly it is, you know, it's a, it's a mindset shift that we have to, to continue and saying, we've got to keep fighting. It's not just today. It's not tomorrow. And we're not going to win this fight by the end of the year. We're not going to win this fight by the end of next year. It is a consistent battle, right? Um, people who had laid the groundwork hundreds of years ago, we're now reaping the benefits, right? They, they didn't get to see the result today. Uh, but you know, every little bit helps. And so continuing to fight, I think it's got to, it can't be this, okay, we checked the box. Now we're done. Right. And, and, and going back to Nate's point, you know, and, and to your earlier question, Jeff. So when you see out of this black lives matter, then you started to see the defund the police. Right. And so now that's gone. And then that defund the police means, okay, more money economically in the programs that Nate's talking about, mm-hmm. um, right and outside the police department but then there's the if other programs continue to follow you know what i mean um and we continue to set that agenda um i I think you know again because if not now when right if if we don't take advantage of this now fuck man we get what we deserve exactly 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 well do you have any thoughts uh you know as far as kind of the organizing element of of you know your, uh, your perspectives on how to keep this momentum going and, um, and other thoughts of that variety. Um, yeah, I mean, man, there's, my mind is buzzing right now. There's, there's so much, uh, so much great material that, that we've been talking about and just the last 10, 15 minutes have been just amazing, but, um, where to begin? Um, I guess as far as the organizing thing goes, the, the thought that occurs to me is, is that, um, you know, people do need rest and, and we do need to recharge. And, and so it, I think it's only natural to see kind of a dip in, in what's happening in terms of the, the on the street kind of action that's going on. But the reality is that even, you know, every, God, it's, it's horrible. Every single freaking day I see now a video or a, a link to something about another, another person being killed by a police officer. It's like every yeah. goddamn day. And, and so you know, I don't see the movement necessarily stopping. Uh, I mean, why would it? Um, Mm. I think the, the goal is to shorten the length of time it takes to, to, to reach the end goal that we need, which is, which is genuine justice. And I think that the, the job of organizers is to figure out the best ways to shorten that length, that length of time, right. To bend that, that moral arc faster. Um, because I mean, it's going to bend, but how many people have to die first before we get to where we need to go? And unfortunately, um, it takes a horrific incident or a series of horrific incidents to bring people out to the street sometimes, but we're as a generation and, and the generation right behind us, the Gen Zers, the Zoomers, we're, we're learning how to organize as we go, right? We're building up organizing muscles as we go. The, the baby boomers did organizing in the 60s. They had their civil rights movement and, and it, it was what they were able to do. And, and after that, there were 
multiple generations, multiple decades where that kind of culture, that kind of counterculture protest movement culture wasn't as strong. I mean, of course there were, there were, there were incidents here and there, but you know, after the Vietnam war protests ended, I don't think we saw certainly in my lifetime, anything like the moment that we're at now. And that's, that's the whole point, right? That's what we're talking about this because this is another moment like that. And um, so we don't really have a lot of experience, a lot of personal experience on how to handle this as a generation. And we can look to our elders for, for advice. Um, but at the same time, we have to remember that, that there were those intervening decades where there wasn't really a movement like this. And so there's also a lot of mistakes that we need to learn from too. And, um, you know, well, I think, I, you know, well, I, go ahead. I, I, hate, I hate to interrupt you, but you know, I think, I think, um, I don't think you guys should look for your elders for the advice, you know? <laughs> okay. I, I really don't, man. I mean, because, you know, a lot of those guys in the sixties turned out to be some of these corporate executives we fighting against now. They, they were hippies right. in the sixties. Right. But, but even still, man, you guys been doing a super job. I, I really, y'all know what freedom is. And y'all know how to, you know, y'all know what, what it means to treat somebody fairly. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, so I, I mean, I'm not saying don't talk to anybody, but I'm just saying, you know what, this is y'all thing, man. No. Yeah, totally. I, I heard a, um, some, somebody, I can't, I'm, I'm going to butcher the joke, but it's some, some quip about <laughs> how the, the, the 60s civil rights movement was, um, just good enough for white liberals. Like that was, that was, that was as far as they were willing to go. They weren't willing to go farther than that. And that's basically why it ended. Um, and, um, but you know, my whole, my whole thing was just as far as organizing goes, part of organizing, I think is learning to build those breaks in yeah. and, and yeah. to sort of build those, those shifts in too, right? Like not like those, those teenagers that organized the protests that we've had in Hawaii here did a phenomenal job, but they can't do every single one, right? They have school, they have other, they got other stuff they got to yeah. do. Yeah. They got their own yeah. lives like we all do. So we need to figure out some kind of way to rotate organizers in and out um, so that we can keep that, that momentum sustained. And I think um, finding find, one of our strengths as a generation is finding ways that even in a pandemic, we can communicate with one another very effectively and plan things very effectively digitally. Some of the digital organizing events that have gone on have just been phenomenal, um, especially the Zoomers. I mean, millennials, we, we kind of get it, but the Zoomers literally grew up with nothing but that it's a, it's completely natural to them to do that. And they're doing, they're doing amazing work. So I think, um, you know, the, those teenagers are doing a great job. And if we can just figure out a way to sort of give some of them a rest and others can come up and, and we can, we can figure out a way to sustain the momentum that we have in a, in a more effective way. Yeah. And, and on that real quick, um, I, I just think that especially, uh, kind of, uh, relatively in consensus with most of what uh, the other people tonight have been saying that, yeah, this, you know, it's like, it's like, we cannot, and so at least from my perspective, we cannot squander this moment, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, as, and, and, and not get too comfortable, you know, and even though we've seen such unprecedented, uh, you know, activity from the general public that, that we've seen in, in the past uh, that, you know, that, that, yeah, we can, we can really, this is, this is something new as far as, what we what what the possibilities are as far as how 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 far we can go with our goals and um and i and so i just think you know it's important even if it's not uh you know the most related uh to to ending you know racism for instance as a as a as a as a way of thinking you know um 
that to, to just join a group of some variety, you know, so that we can start building this base overall um, or, or continue building this base of people who are just civically engaged, period. Because that to me is kind of, um, you know, if I'm going to really be, be, you know, reductionist, just see society is, as kind of in two different, as two different types of people, it's like, I feel like, yeah, it's people who, who are a part of, you know, a part of the civic engagement process and people who are kind of more apathetic to it. And I find that now, you know, um, yeah, now is it now is, is really a big opening to, to get civic engaged in, in, in general. And so, um, uh, and we know, can draw connections between, between different issues, right. Too. So like, um, we can talk about, and we can get environmentalists involved by talking about environmental racism um, or, you know, like what Nate was talking about, these economic issues that feed directly into the criminal justice system is right. So if we can make people understand that these issues are connected, we can bring in people who are maybe passionate only about the environment um, into the movement for, for racial justice as well. If they can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, it's so important that, you know, I think it, it, you know, we saw some of the beginnings of it on a, on a, you know, on a mass scale with, with, uh, you know, Standing Rock and, and this word intersectionality becoming kind of a buzzword after that, you know, that, um, that, yeah, just, just, just seeing that any, all of our struggles can be, you know, related to, to each other's, you know, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's economic justice, whether it's environmental justice, you know, or directly racial justice and the criminal justice uh, system. Um, you know, like for instance, Sunrise Movement, which uh, a group, the group that I'm part of, is a uh, is a group that's in name, you know, a climate climate change solutions organization. But you know, I mean, for us, because uh, we our our mentality is based on something called the People's Alignment. You know, where it's where we we are intersectional with with you know. The, economic justice movement because it ties in with you know why we have climate change period and you know in the racial justice movement because it ties into why we have climate change period and and on all these alliances that we you know keep in our minds so so right now you know for us one of our highest priorities is to uh you know make efforts towards locally defunding our, you know our police departments and um you know and i'm seeing that more with with groups more and more but you know if if there's a if there's a cause that you really care about you know and it's and they're not doing uh, they're not really being, you know, uh, kind of in, in alliance with, with other movements on it, then this, it could be your opportunity to try to uh, shape that, uh, you know, the, the trajectory of that organization, you know, let's say it's, it's a group that's only about conservation, you know, um, you know, it could be an opportunity for you to join that group and try to shape it towards this more, um, you know, this unified kind of vision. Um, so with that, I just wanted to, uh, turn it to our, our guests one last time because we are just about out of time here and just see if anybody has any uh, just last words real quick, um, starting with uh, Nate. Well, I, again, appreciate um, you folks having me on. Um, I'm happy to share my thoughts and uh, I probably messed up quite a bit. So, um, you know, if I, if I need some correcting, you know, you can have me at wrongforhawaii.com. Um, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> This is a this is a a huge issue, um, and racism has been playing a role in society for centuries, uh, for millennia, um, and it's been a tool to use to oppress all groups of people. Right? Um, Irish Italian folks were were treated poorly in, in America historically too. Right? Racism is uh, now hyper focused 
uh, on, you know, we're, we're hyper-focused on the impact that racism has on black folks um, as, uh, you know, they've been oppressed for centuries here in America. And so the movement towards justice needs to definitely be for everybody, right? Um, mm -hmm. Police brutality is a problem um, that is allowed to exist because it, uh, you know, continues to impact uh, black folks predominantly, right? Um, if police brutality um, was a major problem for the wealthiest white Americans, uh, that would be, would be solved, we'd it'd been solved already, right? Yep, uh, yep. So, um, I think, you know, again, the solidarity, the intersectionality, making sure, you know, find a niche, make sure you figure out what it is that you want to focus on and make it happen. Um, but everything's connected. And so until we, uh, until we solve this uh, once and for all, it's going to be a long fight. Wow, thanks. Yeah, and, and, and thank you guys for um for having me. Also, I, I've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed meeting you all, all three of you. Um and, and I'm glad I'm glad that you know that, that to know that we got some young folks out there that, that are, are um staying woke and staying active and, and reaching out um so that other people can see why this time is important. I agree with what Nate said. I mean, you know, we have to I don't know if we can uh, solve the race issue, you know, I, I see, but, but it didn't, you know, it's like somebody told me, you know, we can't feed all the starving people in the world, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying. Right. And, and so the, the fact that we may not be able to eliminate racism is no excuse for us not to try to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes down to policing and the black lives matter movement, you know, just, you know, always keep in mind that, that, that you know, that, the solution there is, you know, charge the police, uh, prosecute the police the same way and with the same fervor that you would do one of us if we killed somebody that was unarmed uh, and, and, and you know, punish them appropriately um, because that's what's going to deter. And, and to stay woke on this issue of qualified immunity, uh, you know, where it's impossible now to sue the police even when they kill you unarmed uh, or almost impossible. And stay woke on on um, um, the issues of these police unions and defund the police and better ways of policing because right now we're comfortable and see people don't want to change when they are comfortable and, and and just you can become comfortable just being okay right you know there could be a better life out there for you you could be comfortable and working a job that sucks if you get used to it. Right. right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so right now people are comfortable in the way that the police here in Hawaii are policing because they don't see it um, as a problem for them. They view the police as keeping them safe. It's, it's, as long as you, the, the more people you lock up, the safer we feel. And the part of the problem is that we have not educated them that there's a better way, that you can actually be even safer with less people in prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can actually be safer with programs that will address drug addiction as an illness as opposed to a crime, mm -hmm. right? You will actually be safer if you raise minimum wage where people don't have to be so desperate that they yeah. have to uh, mm -hmm. commit thefts and stuff like that because they can't afford to feed their families, right? And so I think it's a, it's a you know, Will was saying earlier, you know, um, that, you know, we need to make sure that we're spelling out, you know, everybody, it's almost like a, a relay race where, you know, the, the Zoomers may be tired right now. So now it's time for somebody else to step in and take the baton and lead in another area, whatever we have to do to communicate with one another. But, but we have to start educating people, not just about race, but about why it is that these other alternatives make sense. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now what the police are doing is scaring most of the people into believing that you need us. You need us in this military outfit to protect you from them people. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And if we get rid of us, then who's going to protect them from coming over there destroying your house? Anyway, you didn't ask for all that, man, but I enjoyed being here. <laughs> Thank you. All right, and finally, Will Crone, any last words? Um, yeah, I, I, I really want to thank uh, both Professor Lawson and, and Nate for, for coming on um, and talking about this and, and just acknowledge that it's, um, it's not an easy topic to talk about, but it's something that we have to do. And um, I guess the only thing that that I would add is, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't have any of the personal experience um, that, that our other two guests have, but I do, I do read (laughs) um, specifically uh, black authors and, and, and writers of color. Um, And one thing that um, that's come up in my mind as we've been talking about, this is something that um, Juno Diaz said, and he has problems of his own um, uh, with other, other issues, but one thing that he said that really resonated with me um, is that um, racism and white supremacy is, is like an illness. It's like a sickness that we all have in our, in ourselves. That's, that's a result of the, the collective trauma of slavery and of racism and of indigenous genocide in the Americas and stuff. And it's something that, that we all have inside of us and that we all need to be working on constantly to sort of exorcise like it's a poison. We need to get it out of our systems and, and, and then jumping to another author that, that I want to um, elevate, uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, talks about what you can do to sort of exercise that, that sickness out of yourself. And, and, it's, and it's being an anti-racist. It's being someone who will stand up and fight for policies that actively dismantle racist policies. Um, and so um, I guess that's, that's something that, that I try to do as much as possible is to, to acknowledge that, that there is racism in me. Um, even though I don't think of myself as a racist person, I'm capable of racist thoughts from now, now and then. And part of getting rid of that is, is understanding why that happens and acknowledging that it happens and then working to fix it. And I don't want to get all like personal responsibility-ish because it is a systemic problem and it does require policy fixes. But um, you know, if, if you're another white person like me listening to this podcast, um, you know, pick up one of Ibram Kendi's books. Don't, don't read that, that Italian lady's uh, book um, about uh, white fragility. That, that book is, is trash. Read, read How to Be an Anti-Racist or Stamped from the Beginning instead um, because it, those, those kinds of things can really show you uh, in an eye-opening way. Even if you think you're woke, you're not really, not really. So I don't know. I'm just plugging plugging books because I don't have the the personal experience to talk about. But yeah. Okay. Thanks, Will. Uh, and thanks everybody for listening to the July episode of the Ways and Memes podcast. This has been Jeff Kim of Sunrise Movement, Nate Hicks, uh, YPDA Economics Chair, uh, Professor Ken Lawson, uh, and Will Crone, uh, the co-chair of YPDA uh, Hawaii. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next month. <laughs>